Good morning. We're going to deal this morning with uh, one of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven letters. Uh, these are specifically uh, letters to seven different churches in Asia Minor from Jesus through the Apostle John to these churches. Now, it was specifically for that time, but the interesting thing is because this is God's Word, it is alive with the Spirit of God, it's for us even today. And God is going to speak to us, hopefully, today. And my message this morning is have only one passion in your life. Have only one passion. So we're going to look at Thyatira. We're going to read from Revelation chapter 2 and reading from verse 18. This is God's word. Let's listen carefully. I'm going to read slowly and carefully. Uh, people sometimes read God's word too quickly. I read it maybe a little slower. It's God's word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that the latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and is seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent and her sexual immorality, of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him I will give authority over the nations, and I will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just so far. It's an interesting thing that when John wrote to uh, these churches. He was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, I want to talk about the Christian life. What is the Christian life? The Christian life is growing in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's absolutely foundational. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. So 
the letter to Thyatira is the longest of the seven letters. It's probably to the least most or the least important city in Asia Minor. It it wasn't a religious center, uh, but it was a good commercial center, and it was known for its for its commerce. Uh, there was no threat of persecution. There was in Thyatira a cancer that was growing in this church. It was an evil that was attacking this church. And so when Jesus addresses this church, he starts off with the title and he says, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. You know, already we're seeing that Jesus is quite serious about this church. He sees. He sees everything that takes place. He sees uh, the not only the actions, but he sees the attitudes and the intentions of this church. And he says he, he comes with burnished bronze. That means that he comes with judgment. He's going to come with judgment to this church, and he's going to confront this Jezebel spirit that's taking place. And then he comes with a commendation. He, he, he's grateful and he encourages this church on six different points. He says, I know your works. Now he says that to all the different churches. I know your works, but he says it to this church as well. I know your works. And he commends them for their works. Works are always an outworking of an inward relationship. It's a practical outworking. And those works are helping one another. There is consistency of testimony and witness. There is faithfulness in jobs. There is constantly doing good things. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful because works are always as a result of our relationship with God. As soon as we start doing more in the works and less in the relationship, I think that we have started to get a little bit off balance. Then he goes on and he says, I know your love. These guys were loving. Unlike the church at Ephesus that had left their first love. Left their first love in their relationship with the Lord and with one another. There was a glow. There was a warmth. There was a vigor and activity of love in this church. They had a passionate devotion towards God and towards others. If you have love in your life, it will make up for a great many things that are lacking. No matter how talented you are, no matter how able you are, if you don't have love, you are always, it's not good enough. God started that. And even in our moment when we didn't deserve it, He first loved us. We see in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, we love because he first loved us. And so we receive his love. And as we receive his love, we realize that we're worthy, we're special, we're filled with self-esteem. And on that, we can love others. But he first loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And love has to be selfless. 
1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, Love is not self-seeking. Don't expect anything in return. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. I love the book by Lawrence Crabb, Encouragement, the Key to Caring. He said, as a dad and as a husband, when he came home in the afternoon, he pulled into the garage. And he always made sure that he just sat there for one or two minutes and he reminded himself of this principle. He said, I hope that when I walk through that door, I am met with a happy wife, delightful kids, an electronic equipment that works, a fridge that's working. But if I don't, my job is to minister, my purpose is to minister in love to my family. That's his job. There was one poet that said, there is no difficulty that enough love will not conquer, no disease that enough love will not heal, no door that enough love will not open, no gulf that enough love will not bridge, no wall that enough love will not throw down, no sin that enough love will not redeem. And Jesus commends this church for their love and their faith. This is, this is the doorway into the Christian life, is faith. And they had come to understand the treasure of faith. It's essential to be a genuine Christian. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And he commends them for their service. This church was rendering high service. It was especially beautiful because it was born out of love. Love in itself is a service, but this was service that meant involvement. You know, service is always involvement. Jesus told us that we are the salt of the earth. We are there to be agents of preservation in this decaying world. And we need to spread our influence in the world bringing love, bringing compassion, bringing healing to this broken world. A Christian has to be pro, pro-involvement, pro-reconciliation, pro-abundant life. Christian has to be pro. Francis Schaeffer said, neutrality is a myth. Involvement is the norm for every follower of Jesus Christ. And this church was given to service was also given to perseverance, patient endurance. So for those of you who are under 30 years of age, you won't understand this next illustration. It's about a postage stamp. <laughs> Consider a postage stamp. Its value is in ability, its ability to stick to one thing until it gets to its destination. Hebrews 10 verse 36, you need to persevere 
so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Hold on, hold on when times are tough. And then Jesus finishes off with this commendation, and he says, you are growing in your usefulness. They are making progress. They have warmer hearts. They're more passionate than before in terms of their worship and their celebration of their God. They are working more earnestly. They are giving more liberally. They are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in a more compelling way. But then he goes on. And this is what I want to focus on. The condemnation. You put up with this woman, Jezebel. There was a cancer in the heart of this church. This church was in grave danger. And some of the members had already been trapped and ensnared by this problem. You put up with this woman, Jezebel. They were tolerating this woman who was acting as God's spokesperson. Who was this Jezebel? You put up with this Jezebel, this woman. It could be interpreted, and Moffat interprets it as the pastor's wife. She was a person who was involved in some way with the leadership of the church, and she was having a huge influence negatively. But this was several hundred years after the original Jezebel. And the original Jezebel in First and Second Kings that confronted Elijah, she was the, the queen of Israel next to Ahab. You see, she was a very strong woman. In order to have a very strong domineering woman, you have to have a weak husband. And Ahab was just a, a weakling. And Jezebel, she was the daughter of the king of Sidon. And when she came into Israel, she started introducing into the religion and into the faith of Israel the worship of Baal. And she brought 450 prophets of Baal. Slowly but surely, she started killing off the, the, the Jewish uh, prophets. She didn't want to get rid of the Jewish faith. She just wanted to add to it. She wanted to 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 uh, mix it up. She wanted to compromise the, the the faith of Israel, and she introduced the the prophets of Baal. And eventually, it was Elijah that confronted these four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal. So today, we talk about somebody who has a Jezebel spirit. You know, you remember Elvis had the song, You Are Always On My Mind. Somebody with a Jezebel spirit would change those words and say, I'm always on my mind. That's a Jezebel spirit. Consumed with self, consumed with ego, they always want to be in the limelight. If they're not in the limelight, they will criticize those that are. And if they're traveling in a certain direction, if the church is traveling in a certain direction, they will criticize that direction. They don't like to agree with people, and they like to have their own way. They are very, very disruptive and divisive. Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3, 
verse 9 and 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division, this is how serious division is taken in the New Testament. But as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. It's no good getting into a debate with a divisive person. It won't end in a good, healthy discussion. And you can identify somebody who's divisive, because if they speak to this person, that person will come away from that conversation confused. If they speak to that person, that person will come away angry. And it just leaves a trail of anger and divisiveness and confusion uh, in their wake. And sometimes these people are not even aware that they're doing it. I had in one of the congregations uh, a lady who just wanted to be up front all the time. Just always, always. She wanted to be involved in the worship group. And, uh, you know, I, I heard her sing once, and I'm thinking, she can't even hold a tune. I mean, can she not just turn to her husband, and is the husband not able to say to her, honey, you've got a rubbish voice. <laughs> I mean, what, what is the matter with this guy, you know? I mean, just, you know... Uh, so she was always wanting to be up front. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a difficult question, I suppose. You know, it's like saying when your wife asks you the question, do you think I'm overweight, honey? You don't answer that. You push the pause button and you just look at like deer in headlights. You don't answer that because if you say, if you say, yeah, you are overweight, then you're being brutally honest and uh, you're going to end up in the deep freeze for a week. <laughs> And if you say, no, no, you're not overweight, then she knows that you're lying. And how many more lies have you told over the years? You know, I mean, you just... <laughs> so, so just to protect the guys over this next week, if the wife says to you, honey, am I overweight? Richard says not to ask that question and not to answer that question. I plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> So she was always wanting to be up front. And eventually, I, I mean, she just left division, frustration, all the people that she was talking to. And eventually I called her and her husband in and I said, look, this is the situation. This is what we've seen. Uh, and she got really uptight. And sometimes people with a, with a Jezebel spirit, they respond very aggressively. And she picked up a plastic chair and she threw it across the room. And I'm thinking, what? I've never seen this in my life. Just never seen this in my life. And that's really the unfolding. The Jezebel spirit is somebody who hates leadership. Hates the authority of leadership. She hated Elijah. Said to him, you have challenged the prophets of Baal. You have killed the prophets of Baal. And I'm going to get you. And Elijah ran. 
because she, he was fearful of this woman. The interesting thing is, a person with a Jezebel spirit is just always focusing on him or herself. Doesn't necessarily need to be a woman. Just always consumed with himself. I'm always on my mind. When I read the letters of Paul, and I see what he went through, listen to what he went through in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. More imprisonments, countless beatings, to the point where he was almost dead. Five times he experienced 40 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked, was in danger of robbers, rivers, of Jews and Gentiles, of wilderness, of sea, of hunger and thirst. But never ever once does he elicit personal sympathy. He never ever gets them to think that he is preoccupied with self. Never. He even says, when he talks about some of his sufferings and some of his hardships in, first, in, in Philippians chapter 1, he ends and he says, for me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. Never about self-preoccupation, never about self-concern. Paul's message constantly was, it's not about me. It's not about me. And if we have a view of somebody with a Jezebel spirit, they would take Paul's words, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, they would turn that around and say, for me to live as me and to die just sucks. J.J. Packer says there's nothing more irreligious than a self-consumed religion. I think of the people that come to church. It's about me. I'm not being fed. Is that, is that the point of coming to church? I'm not being fed. But rather to train ourselves to feed ourselves so that we can feed others. I need to be ministered to. The whole point is to be a Christ follower is to get to that place where we can minister to others in Christ's name. I'm not getting anything out of the worship service. Really? Is that the point? That you get something out of the worship service? Or should it be, how much did God get out of the worship service from you? Where did that type of thinking come from in church? Well, Jesus didn't talk like that. Listen to some of the words that Jesus spoke. I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Whoever wants to be first must become lost. Whoever wants to be great among you 
must be a slave of all. Not my will, but yours be done. That's just to show just how different a self-consumed, self-centered religion is to that of what Jesus wants from us. And he addresses this church. And he says, there's a cancer going on here. You see, Jezebel didn't want to destroy the church, but she wanted to introduce stuff. And there are two things that Jesus, through John, talk about. This church, Jezebel, was accused of committing fornication and eating meat offered to idols. Committing fornication. Is this literally or metaphorically? Is this talking about this adulterous and evil generation that turned their hearts from God? Or is this just a literal thing? Well, we'll look at that just shortly. And then meat offered to idols. You know, for us today, it doesn't seem to be that much of an issue. But it was a problem in the early church. And Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 all the way through to chapter 10. And he discusses this problem because meat was offered, food was offered to pagan gods, to demons. And Christians sometimes participated in that. And Paul says, don't do that. You see, one of the things that Thyatira had was it had many guilds. And it was business and commercial suicide not to participate in those meals. I have to care and eat and meet and so that I can enhance. It's not what you know, it's who you know. It's the same old story. And so they got together with these guilds and, and Jesus now is saying, slow down on that. Don't get involved with that. So Jezebel here was urging Christians to, to, to not cut themselves off, but just to mix it up, to compromise. Go on. Just, you can participate in the, in the things of the flesh. You can push the whole sinful thing as long as your spirit is not, is not challenged here. You can, you can live in a place of sin and participate in a place of sin. That's the compromise. Sexual fornication. Hmm. We live in such a sexually orientated society. So hold on to your seats, guys. I'm going to talk, and ladies. I'm going to talk about something here. It's said that 15% of men... 5% of women are addicted to pornography. It's looking lustfully on somebody of the opposite sex. If a man looks with lust on a woman, Jesus says in Matthew 5, you're committing adultery in your heart. Pornography, it become, it's become epidemic. 
there are over 420 pornographic pages, 420 million pornographic pages in the internet. The greatest consumer of pornography is 12 to 17 years of age. 43% of internet users view porn. There are, there are 68 million porn search engine requests daily. The most searched word on the internet search engines is sex. Revenues amount to over a hundred million, a hundred billion dollars a year. You see, pornography, you know, when you view it, I mean, counseled a couple in a previous congregation where she was away on a business trip, she came back, and he had obviously viewed pornography, and obviously because she's been away, they decided that they were going to get together, and he asked her to do something in, in, in bed that night, and he said, have you been watching pornography? <laughs> and he had to admit, yes. Your partner knows almost immediately. See, film never ages. Your spouses do. They get sick. They get tired. They have children. The children tire you out. You see, porn immerses you into a fantasy world and it erodes reality. And once you're involved with that, you feel betrayed, rejected, unattractive, and abandoned. It is also incredibly addictive. You must realize, pornography comes from the Greek word porne, which means prostitute. So you are viewing prostitutes who are being paid to commit sexual acts. It is a very subtle, it desensitizes the soul, it begins to annihilate your spiritual life, you don't feel close to God, it does not enhance your sexual life with your partner, with your husband or wife, not partner, I extract that, with your husband and wife, it cheapens it. It is not a substitute for intimacy with your spouse. It's like shooting Novocaine, which is like spiritual heroin, into your soul. It deadens your soul and it grieves the Holy Spirit. It causes him to withdraw and diminishes his power and his presence in your life. It affects your brain's frontal cortex, where you control the functioning and the impulse of your brain and of your life. It's in the same way as cocaine does. It increases your dopamine levels. So what is the solution? Your solution is that you have to admit that there is power, it has power over you. 
And until you admit that, you are not able to even fight that back. You have to admit that there is power over you in that area. And you recognize the cost of that. Marriages need to be restored. Ministries are ended. Witnesses are diminished. Consider the, 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 your children. I mean, to, to think that those people who are acting in pornographic literature or pornographic material are, they are somebody's child, somebody's daughter, somebody's son that is partaking or partaking in that situation. And we need to take drastic steps to counter and to remove those temptations. We need to thank God daily for victory in that situation. So that is the spiritual, uh, literal thing of you are committing fornication. The, the, the command to this church was you need to have only one passion. And that is the passion to serve and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. D.L. Moody said this, The place of the ship is in the sea, but heaven help the ship if the sea gets into it. The place of the church is in the world, but heaven help the church if the world gets into it. We cannot allow compromise to take place in our lives. You tolerate this woman, Jezebel. She is regarded as the most evil, wicked person in the Old Testament. And now there's a reference of the New Testament. The desire wasn't to destroy the church, but to get it to compromise. When Israel felt passionately about God, when they honored him, when they obeyed him, when they received his guidance, they were victorious over their enemies. But as soon as that passion began to diminish, as soon as that passion began to die down, they began to experience defeat. Remember when Moses went up onto Mount Sinai and he was given the Ten Commandments and he descended after however long it was that he was up there and they, he was greeted with these idols that the people had made from the uh, uh, jewels and from the gold that they had taken from Egypt. And there was this mass, this orgy that was taking place. And it just wrecked Moses. I mean, really, he was given the Ten Commandments and he was the first person and the only person who broke all Ten Commandments at the same time when he smashed those idols with those Ten Commandments, with those tablets. Only one passion. To know and to obey our Lord. So, Compare your love and your desire to know Jesus Christ and do his will with your present practices and your habits. Compare that right now. Is there a difference?
we have a whole lot of influences taking place in our lives that push us and motivate us towards idolatry, to worship the things of this age. We've got choices going on all the time. But the only thing that can put all of those behind us is when we love God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our strength, with all our soul. It's the only thing. Have only one passion. This letter ends with Jesus saying, I've given her time to repent. And she does not repent of her immorality. See, the interesting thing is the Lord stays his judgment. He holds it back. We see in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance. You know, so, so Jezebel thought, well, there's no judgment coming our way, so I'm free. This is, this is, uh, an, an, an okay for me to continue to push this thing of compromise in the church. And so she pushed it. And eventually the Lord says, that's enough. That's enough. Now my judgment will come and I will cast her onto a bed of sickness. Those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And then it finishes off. And this is the promise. And I'll finish off with this now. This is the promise that is given that they will have authority over the nations. In verse 26 and 27, they will have authority over the nations. They will also have the authority of my Father. Isn't that the wonderful thing about, about walking closely with the Lord? The Lord gives us the authority. The, the Son had the authority of the Father, and the Son now says to those who overcome, I will give you the same authority that I have. And then he says, I will give them also the morning star. The morning star in Revelation 22 and verse 16 says, the bright and morning star is Jesus himself. I will, I will be there. I will give you myself. And so that's the promise. Compare your desire to know and to love God with what's going on in your life right now. Is there a discrepancy? Or have you allowed compromise to take place?